chapter 15. Uh, as the kids make their way down here, we're going to start in verse 20 this morning. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by man came death, by man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ, the first fruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet but when it says, all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God, be, that God may be all in all. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this day. Uh, thank you again for your word and what it shows us. I pray that today that, that we see very clearly that, Father, there's only two options for each and every person in this room. Uh, either we're found in, in Adam, uh, and in that case we all die, and we all will spend uh, eternity apart from you. Or, Father, we are found in Jesus. We're found clothed in him and his righteousness. And in that case, Father, that means that we'll be with you forever. Uh, and that, Father, that good news of being in you then changes everything for us right here, right now, in the present time. Uh, be with us now as we study your word, and it's in your name we pray. Amen. So last week we, we began to see where, where Paul began to address the Corinthian Christians kind of on the last issue or on the last area where they were having problems. Uh, and that was in their false belief that there was no resurrection from the dead. And so he explains to them that the resurrection of Jesus Christ and then our resurrection is like the last block in a Jenga game. Like if you pull that thing out, the whole tower falls over, that you must have a resurrection from the dead, that Jesus rose first, and in Jesus rising, that's guaranteeing that one day we will rise again. And so the hope for the believer is not that we're going to go someplace in the sky where we'll play a harp forever, right? Or, or that you and I are going to get vacuumed out of here and your clothes are going to be left in a nice little neat pile, right, on an airplane and everybody's going to be freaking out going, where'd they go? Like that, that's not the hope of the believer. Our hope is that when we die, our soul, our soul goes to be with the Lord, but when Jesus returns, he brings our soul back with him to be reunited with our body, and then we live in a renewed earth with a new body, one that's healthy, one that's whole, one that works properly. And what we said last week is that if you think about it, that's a really beautiful hope for the Christian that one day everything sad is going to come untrue. 
that, that our family and our friends who suffered through debilitating illness, that one day if they're in Christ, we will see that family member again in a new body, a body that's healthy and whole and functioning without the effects of the disease, without the effects of whatever it is that's caused them to be that way. Those of you who've lost children will see those children again in the full flower of womanhood or the power and the strength of manhood. And so it's an amazing and encouraging hopeful thought for us as Christians. And it shows us that what we do in these bodies on this earth matters. That God has called us to steward and care for our bodies and our souls because God cares about the whole person. Not just the soul, but the body and the soul. Now, before we jump into this text of Scripture, I I think you need to hear a word of advice, maybe a word of of warning, because this text deals with events at the end of time when Christ returns. And what's happened with this text is it's kind of been hijacked a little bit, and, and people have used these verses to read events into their particular eschatological vision, right? That's just a fancy word for end times vision. Okay, I had to look it up too. Don't worry about it. I got a history degree, right? I mean, that's where I'm at. But, but particularly those who hold to a, a premillennial dispensational theology of the end times, they'll say that this verse right here validates a thousand-year millennial reign of Christ following his return. And I'm not up here to argue that point today or argue a certain eschatology. And the reason why is I don't believe, and I think most scholars would tell you, that that's not what this text right here is teaching at all. Okay, Gordon Fee commentating says this. He says, this text is not an apocalyptic working out of the chronology of the resurrection. Rather, these sentences are crucial to the whole argument. Christ's resurrection demands our resurrection. Otherwise, death is never defeated and God cannot be all in all. Thus, the concern is ultimately theological. Not just the death of individuals concerns Paul here, but death itself as the final enemy of God and God's sovereign purposes in the universe. In other words, this text is just telling you this. Jesus wins, okay? In the end, when it's all said and done, he's the winner. That's how it works out. So, So if you're a dispensationalist and you believe in a millennial reign of Christ, and at the end of that millennial reign, he gives the kingdom to the Father, maybe you're an all millennialist like myself, and you believe the millennium is currently ongoing, honestly, every one of you in here should be a pan millennialist, right? It's all gonna pan out in the end. We got a lot of work to do until then, right? That's where you should fall on the end times, really, in reality. We can all agree that at the end of this age, these things will take place and ultimately we will live with Jesus in a new heaven and a new earth. That's the point, okay? So let's look at this. Verse 20. Paul correcting them says, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ All shall be made alive. So Paul's saying, listen, regardless of what you Corinthian Christians are saying, Christ has been raised from the dead. He's alive. He did not stay in that tomb. He's the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. So so first off, the term fallen asleep, it's only used of believers in the Bible. It's never used to describe unbelievers. 
So right there, Paul's saying those who died in Christ, those who trusted him, who know him, who believed in him, who put faith in him, they've fallen asleep, meaning that there's going to be a day where their soul is coming back and they'll be resurrected. Those who are not in Christ, they haven't fallen asleep. They're dead. They're done for. They are sentenced away from God for eternity in a real place called hell. That's what Paul's getting at. So he says, since Christ has been raised from the dead, believers are truly forgiven of their sins and their faith is not useless, and their faith is not futile. Now, the term first fruits is important, and if it's in your Bible, you should underline it. See, in an agrarian culture, the, the first fruits were important because in a typical town back then, everyone's hopes and the town's wealth was invested in the harvest. Everyone was a farmer back then. So, so all of your wealth was plowed into the ground, and if the harvest didn't come, you were dead, or at the worst, financially ruined. And so what the first fruits would be would be the first fruit or the first blades or the first corn, the first whatever it is that you planted, that when those first fruits appeared, it brought joy to the town because it meant that the harvest was coming. It meant that people saw that, and they saw that first tomato or that first piece of fruit, and it was a taste of the future saying, hey, we're not going to live. We're not going to die. We're going to live because the harvest is coming. The fruit is coming. Tim Keller says that Jesus is the first fruits. That means the perfect future glory has broken into our time now. The perfect future glory has been brought back into our time so we can experience it. What is the gospel? God's future in the present. A Christian is somebody who can live in the old world with the energy from the new one. Christ is the first fruits. So what he means is that Jesus' resurrection is the beginning of a greater harvest of resurrections that will follow. So in other words, because Jesus has been raised, he's the first fruits, so there's an inevitability to all of this if you're a Christian. That if Jesus has been raised and you're a believer, then one day you will be raised as well. That we're linked to Christ. And so since he's been raised, you will as believers. Right in verse 21 and 22 shows you and I how we're linked to Christ. Look what he says. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Paul says Christians stand in relation to Jesus the way the world, the human race, stands in relation to Adam. So, let's go back to the beginning. God created Adam. God entered into a covenant with Adam. Adam was a representative figure acting on behalf of all humanity. So, government officials today enter into treaties or trade agreement, agreements representing the United States. It's, it's an idea called federal headship, that they are representing you. Whether you like it or not, okay, they're representing you. Their representative actions have far-reaching implications for every citizen. So Adam was that representative of the human race. That was what he was designed to do. And when he failed to keep the covenant by eating the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he fell into sin, he fell into misery, and we sinned and we fell with Adam. So as a consequence, we die. Adam died, we die. Death is the wages of sin. And so in Adam, Paul says, all die. 
But praise God, because what Paul says in verse 22 is that another Adam has come. A greater Adam, a second Adam. Christ has come and did what the first Adam did not do. Christ kept the covenant with God. He obeyed. With Christ, God was pleased. And Christ did not only just keep the covenant, he also paid the penalty for Adam's covenant breaking, for your covenant breaking, for my covenant breaking. Helpful illustration I read this week is, is imagine uh, a mountain. And on that mountain, you, you have a whole bunch of men climbing up that mountain. And every single one of those guys are tied together by a rope around their waist, right? So if one falls, what's going to happen to all of them? They all fall, right? And so as the guy that's taking the lead is going up the mountain, he sticks his axe in. All of a sudden, the rock breaks. It doesn't hold. He falls. And as he begins to fall, you know, you hear him, ah, like he's falling. You know what's coming. The next guy, plunk, goes with him. Third guy, boom, boom, boom. And all of a sudden, it just starts going until it gets to the last guy. And so the last guy's on the mountain. He's watching all these guys fall. And that last guy's thinking, okay, either I go with them or I do something about it. And so the last guy sticks his axe in, he digs in knowing, all right, that I'm going to stand up here, I'm going to hold the ground. But if I do this, since I'm tied to all these guys, and all these guys are hanging down there, this is going to hurt like something fierce, right? And so as it gets to him and the rope pulls, he sticks his axe in and he holds his ground. The rope pulls tight and what happens to the man? He's crushed. He's broken under the weight of all these bodies and under this rope constricting him, but he holds his ground. And as he holds his ground, what happens is the rest of the men are held up. They're able to get their footing, and slowly but surely the man begins to climb back up the mountain, therefore saving everyone else who fell. So see, this is us. Just as Adam fell and pulled us all down one by one, we needed someone to be linked to us but not fallen. We needed someone who could bear the weight of all of our fallenness, someone who could bear the weight of our inability, of all of our evil and sin. But for that person to bear the weight of it meant that person had to be crushed. Jesus Christ was that man. He was the last man on the mountain. Jesus stood his ground where no one else could, and he was crushed for it. And see, this is the heart of the gospel and the reason that we can be made right with God. So, so do you remember that old evangelistic question, right, when we actually used to do evangelism? Ooh, right? And you would walk up to somebody and say, hey, if you were to die tonight and you stood before God and he were to ask you why I should let you in, what would you say? Does anybody remember that question or being, remember being taught that question? Friends, unless you can point to this and only this, you have no credible reply in front of God. This must be your answer when you stand before him. Your answer must be, I was in Adam, and I was guilty with the guilt of his first sin, and I was guilty with the guilt of my own sin. But now, I'm no longer in Adam, I'm in Christ. And because Christ lives, his righteousness is my hiding place. Because Christ lives and reigns, one day I also will live and reign. Listen, there is no third option to get into heaven. You're either in Adam and you're separated from God or you're in Christ. 
In Adam, there's only death under the wrath and curse of God. But in Christ, who rose, there's glorious life. There's life here, right? This freedom that we've been talking about and singing about. Freedom from sin, freedom from bondage. And then there's resurrection life afterward that's coming to us because we're linked to Christ. Right? And in verse 23 through 26, Paul shows us exactly how all this is going to happen. Look what he says. But each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and every power. For he must reign until he has put all of his enemies under his feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. So Paul gives you the order. Here's how it works itself out. First, Christ was raised. He was the first fruit. He was the guarantee that the harvest was coming. He was the beginning. His resurrection is the hope that we will be with Christ, uh, that we will be raised as well, right? That Christ rose on the third day, and when he returns, those who belong to Christ, they shall rise again as well. Their souls to be reunited with a glorious new body. And when that happens, Paul says, then comes the end. When Jesus turns around and he hands the kingdom to his father and he goes, here you go, daddy, it's all yours. And at that point, he will destroy every rule and authority and power. But what Paul says, though, is that until that time, until the time that Jesus turns and hands the kingdom to his father, it says he must reign. Well, who's he talking about? He's talking about Jesus. So as of right now, Jesus is in heaven and he is progressively abolishing all rule and all authority and all power. See, Paul's not describing something that Jesus will do upon his return. He's doing that right now as he sits enthroned at the right hand of the Father. The scriptures all affirm this. In Psalm chapter 110 verse 1, David says that the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. That's God speaking to the Son, saying, sit at my right hand and I will place everything underneath your feet. In Ephesians chapter 1, verses 20 through 23, Jay read that this morning. Speaking of, of God, he says that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So when Christ returns at the conclusion of this present age, he will then destroy the last remaining enemy. The final enemy to go down is death. See, theologians call this the death of death. And all of this takes place upon Christ's return. When death is finally undone, at the resurrection of the dead, Christ's mission will then be finished. And when Christ's mission is finished, look at what happens next. In verse 27, Paul tells us exactly what happens. It says, For God has put all things in subjection under His feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that He is ex accepted who put all things in subjection under Him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will be in, subje in subjection to him who put all things in subjection under him that God may be all in all, okay? 
So Paul just kind of repeats what he said in verses 24 through 26. That all things will be put under the son's feet. Meaning evil, demons, death. It's all going to be wiped away. And so Paul's very careful though to help you and I avoid a misunderstanding. So all things placed under Christ does not include God the Father. You notice that? It does not include God the Father. The Father is not subject to the Son since ultimately who's the one that's placing everything under the Son's feet right now? It's God the Father. He is the one who is actively saying, I'm the one putting everything underneath your feet, son. I'm in control of all of history. I'm the one that's subjecting all of this. The father is not subject to the son. So the one who subjected all things to the son cannot, be, he cannot himself be subject to the son. In verse 28, look what it says. It says, when the son himself will also be subjected to him who has put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. So when history comes to a close, everything will be placed under the Lord's feet and the mountain of the Lord will then fill the entire earth. That's a direct fulfillment of Daniel 2.35, right? Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floor and the wind carried them away so not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. So at this point, let's look at what the Bible says. Folks, first and foremost, we're not going anywhere. If you're a believer, when you die, your soul will go to be with the Lord in heaven. But when the time is completed, Jesus will return and bring your soul with him to be reunited with a new, perfect body. And you will exist and reign on a new earth, a renewed earth that is made perfect. The whole point of 2 Peter chapter 3 is that he's not going to just throw a fireball and blow up the earth. It's that fire has a renewing quality, that it will burn away the old and the new will come and it'll be better and more beautiful because it was once so broken and lost. Isaiah 25, 8 says he will swallow up death forever and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth for the Lord has spoken. And then in Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 through 4, that I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither, sh there sh neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Notice the language. The new heaven and the new earth come to us, and we will live with the Lord forever. See, the last thing that happens is that the son then turns around and he turns to the Father and he gives the kingdom to God the Father. And the Son then submits himself to the Father. And it says that then God will reign and he will be supreme. And all praise and honor and glory will go to him forever and ever and ever. See, there's a glory to this if you think about it, isn't there? That, that, that God is in control of all things, that it's all headed somewhere, that it's all going somewhere, that currently right now Jesus is reigning and God is subjecting all of his enemies, putting them under his feet, and one day God's going to say, go get him, son. 
And Jesus will come back. And as believers, there should be something in us that longs for this moment. I, I think a lot of times we don't long for this moment, do we? I think a lot of times the reason we want to look at the newspaper and go, oh, okay, I see what's going on right here. China's doing its thing. Okay, Apache helicopter's coming down from Russia. Like, we want to try to figure all this out. The reason is is because we love this world a lot more than we love the one that we're going to. And so we want to hold on to as much of it as we can, or we want to watch the signs so that we can go, okay, I can live however I want up until this point right here, and then I better get serious about living for Jesus. And what we should have as believers is we should have a longing in our heart for the day that the sky splits and Jesus comes back and it's all over and we get to live with him forever and ever. The day the trumpet sounds and we see the blazing glory of our returning king and that we're changed in the twinkling of an eye and we're made to be like him at last. When the dead in Christ rise and the end comes, sin is gone, sadness is gone, weariness is gone, wars are over, no need for politicians and elections, thank the Lord, all that will be wiped out. We should long for that day. Tim Keller says that that day, everything sad will come untrue and it will be better for once being so broken and so lost. So brothers and sisters, listen to me. If you're a Christian, that's your hope. That's where history is heading, and that is going to be a wonderful day. But listen to me, until then, we have a whole lot of work to do, don't we? There's still people that don't know Jesus. There's still people that are stuck in Adam, and they've not been clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And so as believers, it should be our job to do everything in our power to go and tell them about Jesus. That what we do until that day is that we continue to look to Jesus, to trust Jesus, to trust Jesus' gospel, and to tell others about what that Jesus has done. So brothers and sisters, let me encourage you with something. Jesus wins. So if Jesus wins, that means we shouldn't be so fearful about everything like we are. I mean, man, 2020's coming, and I'm already dreading it as, as your pastor. Like, I'm, I'm not looking forward to November 2020. I'm not looking forward to January 2020 as everybody in our town's going to freak out, going, oh, man, the Democrats are going to get it in socialism, and here we go. And, and we start fretting and worrying, and we start freaking out about everything. Who cares? Jesus wins. I'm not worried about anything. Well, what about losing our religious freedom, Pastor? I don't care. Bring it on. A little persecution actually makes us stronger. A little persecution might wade and get rid of some of the, the nominal Christianity that's just so rampant in our part of the world. You know why I don't care? Jesus wins. I know where this thing is going. And I know that no matter what Satan tries to throw at God's church, he can't stop it. The mountain of the Lord will fill the entire earth. So brothers and sisters, here's your hope. Rest in that. Rest in Jesus. Stop being so fearful about all the things that come and just keep your eyes on Jesus, okay? And if you're not a Christian, listen to me very clearly. You only have two options today. Either you remain in Adam or you trust in Christ. It's really that simple. In Revelation chapter 16, verse 15, it says, Behold, I'm coming like a thief, right? You're not going to know when he's coming like that. It's over. Blessed is the one who stays awake keeping his garments on that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. What he means 
is that when you stand before God, you will either be clothed in Adam, and you'll stand there and you'll say, hey, here are all my good works, all my good intentions. Here's my righteousness. Here's everything that I did. What do you think, God? Did I do enough? And what he means is, is that when you do that, you will stand before God naked because it won't be enough. And I don't care how good you think you are, it will fall short. See, the forgiveness of sins will not come based on your good deeds or how you lived. It only comes because of Jesus. So you can stand in Adam or you can stand in the presence of God clothed in Christ and his righteousness. You can stand in his presence and say, everything I did fell short, but everything Jesus did was plenty. Everything Jesus did was enough. He paid my debt. His righteousness was enough. His perfect life was given to me. And so what I would tell you is this, is this perfect life can be yours today before you leave the building. And so if you feel your heart being stirred up today, that's the effectual call of God wooing you and calling you to himself. So don't leave here without acting on that stirring today. Maybe today you're sitting there hearing all of this and you're going, man, that's kind of scary a little bit to think about that Jesus is going to come back one day and all this is going to happen and, and I may not be with him. Maybe that's God's way of saying you don't know Jesus. Well, pastor, you're trying to scare me with hell? Sure. It's a real place. And you either stand in Adam or you stand in Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for all you've given us. Father, I thank you for the hope that we have that this whole thing is heading somewhere and that you have not lost control of any of it, not for a second. And that, Father, one day you will split the sky and you will come back. You will come back and, and you will reign and rule this earth forever and ever and ever. And those of us who are found in Christ, clothed in his righteousness and his alone, we will be with you, we will worship you, we will praise you, we will spend all of eternity with you, Father. And so I pray that as believers we would realize that that's our hope and that's where this thing is headed. And if that's where this thing is headed, we have nothing to fear. If the worst thing that happens to us in this life is death, there's so much more waiting for us on the other side of that. So help us to ground ourselves in that and anchor ourselves in that. I pray that if we're in here today and we don't know Jesus, that today, as the gospel has been presented, that, Father, you have stirred up in, in, in hearts today their need for you and that people would put their faith and trust in you and that you would call men and women to you and that you would save in this room today. Father, thank you that we don't have a dead hope, but we have a living hope who's alive and well. He's reigning and ruling. And today as we close, we get to stand and sing to that, that hope to Jesus Christ. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. If you would, please stand.